today for our sermon, we're actually going to be starting a new series. I mentioned that last week, that we were finishing off our, our prior series, and that today we'd be starting something new. And this new series that'll take us really through the rest of the summer, and then after Labor Day, we'll sort of do our usual fall kickoff and everything and start something new. But for the rest of the summer, we'll be in this series. And we're going to be looking at the kings of Israel, and really thinking of, of Israel, the kings of Israel, some uh, before the, the monarchy, the kingdom was split, right? If you sort of think of Israel's history, there was a period where it was all united. Um, and so we're going to look at some kings from that period, but then there was a time when it split uh, into the northern kingdom, also called Israel, but then also the southern kingdom of, as well of Judah. And so we're going to look at some kings from Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, also from Judah, the southern kingdom, but also, as I mentioned, also from the period before when it was a united kingdom as well. So we're going to look at these Israelite kings, and, and what we're going to do is, we're not going to take a look at every single one, of course, we'll highlight some specifics, but we're going to draw out from Scripture and from the lives of these kings that we're going to look at various lessons. So this series is really going to be learning lessons from the Israelite kings of Scripture. And today, we're going to be taking a look at Solomon. And certainly there's an awful lot you could talk about if you want to talk about King Solomon. Uh, we're not going to look at his life sort of through the lens of the big picture of Solomon and who he was. And, and, and rather, though, we're going to sort of take a, a little bit of a microscope and look at one specific but very significant event in his life and, and really take a look at that and say, what is the lesson, the awfully significant lesson that we can learn from uh, this singular event in Solomon's life? And so the, the singular event that we're going to look at, this is in Second Chronicles, so you can flip open your Bibles there, or maybe you're on your phone, you get your Bible app and turn there. Second Chronicles, and this is chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. And just sort of before I dive in and read, I'll, I'll kind of set the context here so you sort of know what's going on here. Uh, the temple has been built, Solomon's built the temple, and not only has it been built, but now it's also been dedicated and sort of that has just taken place, and now, boom, we're at verse uh, 11 here of chapter 7. And so that's what's just taken place, and now here begins our passage. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse uh, 11 to begin with, through to verse 22. And here's what it says. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, speaking of the temple there, and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among the, my people, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne 
as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside, and I want to make a little note here, the you here is now plural. So this isn't just speaking here, right? In English, it's not overly clear, but in the Hebrew, it's unambiguous, it's plural. This is now not just speaking of Solomon himself, but the you here is speaking of the whole of the people, the people of Israel. But if you, the people of Israel, turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you out from my land that I have given you. In this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. So I kind of want to take a look at this passage and say, sort of, what's going on here? What's taking place, right? And here's what's being said. Here's what the Lord is telling Solomon, right? And he's speaking to Solomon, but really speaking of, in reference to the whole of the people of Israel. And here's what he's saying, right? That there may come a time, and indeed there will come a time, when the people of Israel will stray from the Lord. Right? They will sort of fall away from the Lord. They'll live in sin. They'll, they'll stray and worship other gods. Right? There will come a time when there will sort of be a spiritual decline amongst the people of Israel. And when that time comes, there's, in a sense, now two possible paths, right? two possible responses, and therefore two possible outcomes that the people of God can then have. They have sort of uh, strayed from the Lord. There's been this spiritual decline. And, and what God says is if they respond in a positive way, this is, this is verse 14, Right? And actually, to back up a second, right, there's been a spiritual decline, but then as a result of this, because they have forsaken the Lord, because they've strayed from Him, they've gone after other gods, uh, then there are all sorts of punishments and consequences. And that's what he's speaking of in verse 13 here. He says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence, right, a plague among my people, he, he's talking about here, because you have sinned, this, this time will come, he's saying, for the people of Israel. Uh, this time will come, and, and not just necessarily once, but time and again, as the people stray from the Lord, they forsake him, they, they choose to live in sin rather than faithfully to the Lord. He's saying, and because of this rebellion, because of this forsaking of me and my ways, he says, I'm going to bring consequences. I'm going to bring punishments upon them. Well, and that could be various things. He lists a few here in, in verse 13, but it could be, right, shutting up the heavens. It, it doesn't rain, and so there's famine, and and death as a result. It could be some foreign nation waging war and attacking Israel and sort of laying it waste. It could be some sort of deadly disease. It could be all sorts of things. But because of this forsaking of the Lord, there will be consequences and punishments upon the people of Israel, right? And he says when this happens, right, if they have a positive response, then God's going to respond in a favorable way. Here's what he says. If at this time, as they've strayed from the Lord, all these consequences come, and they kind of, all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off, and they realize, what have we done? Right? We see all of the misery that we're going through, and this is because we've forsaken the Lord. And if they have this response, verse 14, it says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek 
my face and turn from their wicked ways. To put it simply, he says, if they humbly repent, if they humbly repent and they forsake their sinful wicked ways, they return toward me and they call out to me in prayer, cry out to me in prayer, seeking healing and deliverance. If they do that, if they respond in that, that correct way, he says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so he's saying, when they have forsaken me and I've brought all sorts of consequences and punishments upon them, if they respond this way by, by acknowledging their wrongdoing, confessing it, they, they repent of it, turn from their wicked ways, return to me and cry out to me in prayer for healing. He says, what am I going to do? I'm going to be gracious. I'm not going to hold their sin against them and punish them as I had been doing, but because they've repented, I'll forgive them, right? And I'll heal their land. And, and here, the, the sense of healing their land, yes, this sort of the, the very obvious surface level of, well, say the example is, what if he, you know, shuts up the heavens and it doesn't rain and so there's, there's a drought and as a result there's famine, right? Well, then there'll be a very literal healing of of the land, he'll send rain and it will grow crops. But I would say that this is also very much a stand-in for healing in, in a very holistic, all-encompassing way in, in every sphere of life. Yes, this sort of the very obvious surface level of, right, I've brought consequences upon them, punishment because of their sin, right, and that may impact the land in a very literal way, and they might suffer as a result, and if they turn and they repent and cry out to me for healing, well, then I'll heal their land in the very obvious sort of tangible way, right? But I'd say more is in view than just that. I would say what is very much also in view is, is a very all-encompassing healing, that in every way where because there was sin, there was brokenness and devastation and, and sort of sickness in every sphere of life as a result of the sin, now that they have repented and returned to the Lord, uh, there will be healing in every sphere of life, not just sort of the tangible, tangible, yes, now the land will grow crops, but I'd say even more significantly in a spiritual way they'll be healing. Now that they've returned to the Lord, right, they've repented of their sin, returned to Him, He will bring spiritual healing, spiritual growth, a spiritual vitality and liveliness and revival in their midst. But, but that sort of renewed vitality that he will bring will not just remain within sort of the spiritual realm of there will be a spiritual vitality and spiritual growth uh, and godliness that he will stir within his people and cultivate in that sort of spiritual revival. But again, it will also overflow into all of the more external and sort of tangible realm as well of the healing of the land and whatever afflictions are upon them as a result of sin, he'll bring healing there. It's sort of all-encompassing healing. I'd say that is what is intended here by the healing of the land, sort of every sphere of life, whether it's the tangible, whether it's sort of one's spiritual state and walk with the Lord, in every way there will be this renewed healing and, and vitality and liveliness. There will be revival in their midst, uh, in the midst of God's people, in them and in every sphere of life. This is very much a passage that speaks to uh, revival in regard to God's people, where there has been a decline uh, and a forsaking of the Lord, then as they repent and return to the Lord, He brings revival and renewed vitality in their midst, spiritually, but also in every sense, in every sphere of life. And so if they respond favorably in this sort of moment of crisis as they recognize they've, they've turned from the Lord, they, they've, they've forsaken Him, if they recognize that, they repent of their sin and cry out to Him for healing, He'll bring wondrous healing that they wouldn't believe. That they, It's just beyond one's ability to even fathom wondrous healing and revival in their midst and, and just pouring out blessing upon blessing. And whatever consequences were upon them, whatever punishments, they'll be taken away. They'll just be an outpouring of vitality and liveliness and, and just... Uh, just wondrous revival and healing in their midst. 
So that's the one response they can have, that response of repentance and a return to the Lord. But he says, uh, if they have sort of forsaken me, there's sort of another possible response, if they have sort of forsaken my ways, forsaken me, turned toward other gods, and if instead of, as I bring punishment upon them, the Lord is saying that they might understand that they have done wrong and they're suffering punishment as a result, if instead of then recognizing that and repenting, if they sort of double down on their sin and continue in it and persist in it, this is what we see in verse 9. 19, this is the other option of how God's people could respond to say, we don't care. Yeah, you're punishing us. We're just going to keep on sinning. We're just going to keep on doing what we want. We're going to keep on forsaking you and living our sinful lives. Well, then what's the consequence? He says, verse 19, but if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Right? He's saying, if they don't repent, if they don't return to me, if they continue in their sin and their rebellion, what am I going to do? This wondrous land that I have given to them is a glorious inheritance. I will cast them out of it. I will pluck them up from it and cast them out and send them into exile. And as for this wondrous, glorious temple that has been built for me, for me to dwell in, the Lord is saying, he's saying, right, that has just been built, it's just been consecrated, just been dedicated, he's saying, what does he say, right? I will cast it out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And what we see, these are sort of the two options. As God's people have sort of strayed from him, there's sort of two possible responses, a response of repentance and return to the Lord and crying out for help and healing when we do that, of course, when God's people did that. And this still applies to us today, as we're going to talk about. When God's people did this, and we're going to see this, I'll look at, we'll look at some examples, right? Uh, when God's people did this, what's the response? God brings wondrous healing. But then there's the other possibility of them saying, no, we're going to continue to forsake you and your ways, and instead, what does God say? Well, I'm going to send you into exile, and there will be devastation of the land. You'll be cast out of it, and of course, the temple itself will be destroyed. And in fact, that comes to fruition. If we think of that consequence that he says there, starting at verse 19, if the people sort of continue in their rebellion, continue in their sin. This is sort of the story of Israel, right? Whether it's the northern kingdom that, that really from its very beginnings just was in rebellion to the Lord and it was just bad king after bad king after bad king and the people forsaked the Lord and, and went after other gods. What did he ultimately do? He wiped them out. The northern kingdom just was wiped off the face of the earth and they're done and over with. Right? Or we think of the, the southern kingdom in particular of Judah. What happened? They forsake the Lord. Yes, there were times of revival, and we're going to look at one specific instance. But sort of on the whole, over time, ultimately there was a continued uh, pursuit of sin and rebellion. And what was the ultimate result? They were exactly as God said here, as he foretold. They were cast out of the land. The Babylonians came in, swept in, conquered the people, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were sent away into exile, and the temple itself was destroyed just as the Lord speaks of here. Right now, ultimately, of course, we know God is gracious and he preserved a remnant and brought them back to the land and the temple was rebuilt because God is just a wondrous and gracious God. Uh, but nonetheless, this did indeed come to fruition. So we see the negative aspect, the negative...
response, if people persist in sin, that he says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. The consequences are going to get more and more severe until the point that ultimately I'm going to take you out of the land and this temple that has just been built will be destroyed. But we also see, and this is this I certainly want to focus on, is when there is that positive response of uh, returning to the Lord as God's people have strayed from Him, forsaken Him, uh, when they recognize that and, and repent of it, turn from their wicked ways, seek after the Lord, uh, cry out to Him for healing, that He does respond wondrously and bring true healing upon the land uh, in every way, in every sphere of life. And we see this, I want to look at a very specific example here. We're going to turn to Second Chronicles, just look a little bit later in Second Chronicles, to turn to chapter 14, and this is verses 1 through 7. And here's what it says, Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So Abijah was not a good king. He was an evil king who, did, who behaved wickedly in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and so there was this spiritual decline under his, under his reign, under his authority as king. Uh, as he led the people astray, there was this spiritual decline and forsaking of the Lord. But then his son comes to the throne, Asa. And Asa was a good king. And let's read on. We're going to see how this progresses. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest, he had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. Right, what do we see? So we have the, the king that came before him, Abijah, who was a wicked king. There was spiritual decline, and, and there were consequences. There was a lack of prosperity. There was war. There was devastation. It just was not a time of thriving for God's people. Right, but then what happened? So there's, there's sin, there's forsaking of the Lord, and there's consequences and punishment as, as a result. Then we have a good king who leads, not, it's not just he was the only one who was faithful to the Lord, but he led all of his people, all of the people of God, all of Judah uh, to return. He led them in returning to the Lord in, 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 in faithfulness. He led them in a response of, of acknowledgement of the wrongdoing of, of the ways of Abijah and, and, and the people of Judah and their forsaking of the Lord. There was a, a turn from the wicked ways, a return to God, a, a repentance, undoubtedly a crying out for healing. Uh, and so what do we see as this, this, this humble response of, of repentance and turning from one's wicked ways uh, in the time of Asa? Well, what happens? God blesses. He heals the land where there was uh, before there was sort of a lack of vibrancy and vitality and thriving amongst God's people. There was, there was warfare that was nonstop. What does he do? He brings peace. It, the, the warfare stopped and ceased for, for 10 years, and there was peace. And during this time, it says there was prosperity, and the, the, the land was able to be built up, and there was a thriving of God's people. There was a healing of the land, a holistic healing, uh, a thriving in every way for God's people because of what? Because they returned to the Lord. They repented of their sinfulness and returned to the Lord and, and cried out to Him for healing. And God was faithful to what He said, and He said, when you respond to me this way, I'm going to bring healing. 
And that's exactly what took place. And so we see this, and you could go and look through the, the story and history of Israel, and certainly there are various times when we see these periods of sort of revival and return to the Lord, and, and what happens is sort of God's people understand their sinfulness, that they've strayed from the Lord and they repent. God brings wondrous healing upon the people upon their land. And so we see this play out time and again in the history of Israel, uh, whether it's Israel, the United Kingdom, or whether it's the Northern Kingdom of Israel, whether it's uh, the Southern Kingdom of Judah, we see these principles play out, whether it's this response of repentance and God bringing healing as this return to Him, or whether it is as God's people continue in forsaking Him and straying from Him, then what is the consequence? Severe punishment. He ultimately plucks them out of the land, the temple's destroyed, but of course, as we know, God is still ultimately a wondrous and gracious God, and He restores them to the land. And what I want to say for us here is this isn't just true for the people of Israel. It's not like these principles and what God says here, uh, well, this is true for Israel in their day and age, and it's no longer relevant for us. I would say, yes, it was true for Israel but Israel in, in their day and age, but it's also true for us in our day and age. It is also true for God's people today. And I'd say we're in very much the same situation, uh, the situation that's spoken of here as we look at Second Chronicles chapter 7, uh, particularly as you look there at verses 13 and, and 14. I would say the church is in a state of having sort of spiritually waned. The church today, and I'm not like the first person, the first church leader or pastor to have said that the church has been in decline for decades. For decades, leaders in the church have been saying this, that there is this need for revival in the church, that, that the American church, I'm really speaking of the American church, I'm not speaking of the church in Nepal as we talked about a little bit today or, or other places in the world, but looking specifically at the American church, the American church has been in decline for decades now. It has become very much superficial. Uh, it, it's sort of a weak level of spirituality and, and maturity in the faith. And this is sort of what the American church has cultivated. And, and you see it in all sorts of ways, whether you want to look at any sort of polls, look at sort of Barna Group polls about, you know, whether it's divorce in the evangelical church or struggles with uh, pornography or materialism or alcohol, or you pick the sin, you name it. And all of the studies, all of the polls show, well, what does the evangelical church look like? just like the rest of the world around us. Divorce is rampant, struggles with, with pornography and sexual addiction, it's rampant. All of those other things, materialism, alcoholism, again, just, just pick the issue or the sin, it's rampant in the church. And you look at the church and you say, the church doesn't seem like it, it's thriving. It doesn't seem like there's this great spiritual vitality, but rather it seems like the, the vitality of the church has very much waned and declined over the decades to the point that we have sort of a weak and feeble and immature church in our day and age today that is not very fruitful and doesn't glorify God all that much. And I'd say that's sort of the state of the church the American church right now. And so I would say this, this passage that we're looking at is thoroughly relevant for our time because the reality is we have strayed from the Lord just as we look at in this passage the whole context uh, in which God is speaking here is, hey, there's going to come a time when, when you, my people, are going to stray from me. And he says, then there's sort of a fork in the road and there are two paths you can take. You can either continue in your sin and there's going to be all sorts of heavy and severe consequences or he says to his people, you can humbly repent, leave your wicked ways behind, return toward me, 
right? Return to me and cry out to me for healing. And if you do that, he says, I'll bring wondrous healing. I'll bring revival in your midst. There will be such a, a thriving and wholeness and peace and, and prosperity in every way. And I don't mean prosperity in a financial sense. That could be the case, but I mean a more holistic sense. There'll just be a real thriving amongst God's people and a healing, he says, if you humbly repent and return to me. And I'd say this is the situation that the church is in right now. We are at the fork in the roads. There's been a spiritual decline, and we desperately need revival. We desperately need uh, to ultimately recognize our sinfulness, recognize that we've strayed. And I'm not saying that this is like New Hope Chapel specifically. I think we're a pretty mature church in an awful lot of ways. But, but I'm sort of speaking of the American church generally. But I think we also still, each and every one of us in every church, we have our, our areas of weakness and struggles, and there are areas of sin. And we need to recognize that and confess it and say, Lord, we weep and mourn over the ways that we have turned from you, that we have forsaken you and your ways, and just come before him humbly and repent, confess our sin, turn from our wicked ways, turn toward the Lord, and cry out to him for healing. This is what the American church needs for this day and age, for our time right here, right now, to recognize that we have waned spiritually, that we need to turn in repentance to the Lord and seek healing. And if we do, he's going to bring wondrous healing. He'll bring such revival in our midst, and, and the church desperately needs that for its own sake, that there might be just a thriving in the church, a, a spiritual revival where there'll be growth and, and, and godliness and, and a growing in Christ-likeness, that, that the church can be all that God intends for it to be. Also, that we might then bear fruit and impact the world around us, because as a weak, feeble church, we're not impacting the world around us. We're not being powerful witnesses for Christ and, and impacting those around us, but we need to be revived. We need to see God work in us in a powerful way and bring that Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity and deeper relationship with God and walk with Him and, and greater love for Him and for others. We need to see God bring spiritual revival in the midst of His church for our sake, for his glory, and that we might reach out into the community around us and impact it for his kingdom. And I want to apply this not just to the church, because we can apply it to the church and say, hey, this is the state of the church. The church has declined. We are God's people, just as Israel was God's people. We're his people. And he says, hey, when you've forsaken me and turned from me, if you repent humbly and turn back toward me, I'll bring healing. Yes, the church is in that state, but I also want to say these same principles apply to nations as well, right? And I want to apply this to our country as well, and not just sort of the church in it, though I think the two are very much tied together as you think of sort of the thriving of the church in this country or lack of thriving, and is very much tied to the thriving of the nation or lack thereof of the nation. And so I'd say they very much are intertwined and fit together, but I want to speak to our country as a whole too. And as I look at our country, it's quite clear that we live in a country that ever increasingly over a number of decades has, has sort of forsaken the Lord uh, in an ever-increasing way, forsaken Him, forsaken His ways, whether it's abortion, and we, we slaughter unborn children roughly a million a year, and we think nothing of it. I know we as a church think something of it and are against it, but I'm saying as a nation, it, it's sort of no big deal, and we almost celebrate it as a nation. Or, or whether it's celebrating homosexuality or transgenderism or sort of you pick it, you name the sin, we seem to celebrate these things and, and sort of stray from the Lord ever increasingly. And then for some reason, we seem surprised when our nation doesn't seem to thrive, when we have a pandemic come our way, which is one of the consequences that God specifically, in punishments, God specifically even mentioned 
uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 here as a possible consequence that he would bring upon his people as they forsake him. We seem surprised when our nation seems to be torn apart along racial lines. Uh, just to give even further statistics, I was talking to Dave about this before the service, but uh, it's my generation, millennials, that are the first generation in the history of this country that is going to be economically worse off than the prior generation. So you think of a nation that, that I'm not saying that in, in every generation, everybody sought after the Lord and we were just this perfect godly nation. I'm not go going to try to paint some, some unrealistic, overly ideal picture, but this was a nation that certainly was grounded upon godly principles and there was a significant degree of faithfulness and godliness in this country. And as that was the case, generation after generation, God blessed. And one of the ways in which he chose to bless was financially. And, and this country thrived and it, and it grew and it just sort of uh, ever increasingly blossomed and it just thrived ever increasingly economically. And yet now, just as we're saying, hey, let's turn away from the Lord, let's forsake him, forsake his ways, all of a sudden we reach a peak and now we're in decline economically. Is that a surprise? Should it come as a shock to us? Right? I'd say, I'd say not. It shouldn't be a shock. All of these things, as we look at our country, and it doesn't seem like a country that's sort of thriving and doing wonderfully, but it seems like a country that is floundering and struggling in every way. And I'd say these are the consequences of sin and forsaking the Lord. And our response to it should be to sort of have the light bulb go off and say, I know why, right? We are a country that has strayed from the Lord. He's punishing us. And what is to be the response? We need as a nation to have the response of, returning to him, right? To forsake the sins, right? That we have chosen to, to dive headfirst into, right? Repent of that, turn from that, return to the Lord and cry out for healing. And if we do, not just for the church, but for the nation as a whole, he will bring healing upon a nation that desperately needs it. And again, I want to say, as we talk about our nation, as we, as we talk about the church, I'd say they intimately are tied together. The, and I'd say it really starts with the church. If the church acknowledges, hey, we're not what we're supposed to be, we have our struggles, we have our failings, the church has been in decline for decades, and we need to return to the Lord. And if we cry out in repentance and seek healing, God will bring revival. And as he does that, as he brings revival in our midst, and brings healing and grows us spiritually, the natural overflow of that is not just for revival then to stay within the bounds of the church, but for to break forth into the community around us, and for there to be a great awakening, as has happened time and again throughout history, even in the history of our country, for there to be a great awakening to the Lord and for people to, who, who do not know the Lord to have their eyes open to the truth and, and repent and turn toward the Lord. And as that happens in our country, as people are coming to faith and repenting of their sinfulness, there will be, as God says, that response of bringing healing upon the land. And so what I want for our challenge is I think of where do we go from here as God's people, as the church? This is our application to do what God says, right, in this passage that we looked at in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 to recognize that we need to humble ourselves, come before the Lord, acknowledge our sin, acknowledge our wrongdoing, turn from it and say, Lord, we're done with this. We're not going to live this way anymore and return to the Lord, seek after him, humbly repent and cry out to him for healing healing in every sphere of life, but most notably spiritual healing, that he would just bring wondrous revival within us and in our midst and grow us in ever-increasing Christ-likeness, that he would build within us ever-increasingly a godliness and a love for him. 
and that flowing out of that then as revivals taking place in his church, that he'd be honored and glorified in that, and that then his church would be all that it ought to be and have the impact in the world that it ought to have, and that through that we might be able to reach our surrounding community for Christ, for his kingdom, and impact our country, that it might experience healing and revival, and that God might be glorified in it all. And so let's do that. Let's humbly repent and cry out to God for healing. And as I close this sermon, I want to say, let's actually do it right now. We always close our sermon with prayer, and let's do that now. Let's come before the Lord humbly and repent. And so join me in praying. Lord God, we thank you that we are your church. And what a blessing, what a gift that is. But we also acknowledge that in your church here in America, there has been a spiritual decline. We see the evidence of it all around us. As a church, we don't seem to live in a countercultural way, in a biblical way, honoring you, but we seem to look just like the world around us, struggling largely to the same extent with all the same sins. There isn't a vibrancy and vitality in your church, but it seems like your church is weak and spiritually immature, Lord. And in this state that we are in, having suffered this decline, Lord, we are to respond as you call us to. To humbly repent, to acknowledge our wrongdoing, our sins, and we do that, Lord. We acknowledge our failings, our shortcomings, all the ways in which we've disobeyed you, dishonored you, collectively as a church, but also each and every one of us as individuals. We repent of it, Lord. We turn from it and say no more to those wicked ways, and we seek after you, Lord, and we cry out to you for healing. Bring healing in every area of our lives, in every sphere of life, first within us. Bring spiritual healing, Lord. Grow us, mold us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stir within us, cultivate and grow within us godliness. Help us to be all that we ought to be. Bring that spiritual renewal and revival and healing within us. But may it also overflow into every sphere of life, not just the internal but the external. And may there just be vitality and vibrancy and healing all around us in every way, Lord. And may that not just stay within the church, but may it break forth outside of the church and result in a great awakening. May hearts be stirred toward the truth of the gospel, the truth about you. May many come to faith, and as people repent and return to you, Lord, and come to faith, may you bring healing in our nation, Lord. And we pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.